Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Laura. Welcome to my podcast, Where Work Meets Life. I am delighted to have Cy Wakeman back on the podcast to talk about her newest book, Life's Messy, Live Happy. So, Cy Wakeman is one of the writers in the business world and the world at large that I admire most. She's a New York Times bestseller. She's also a business owner, a mother, and a community member who has lived her philosophy to find profound happiness and success in a life that has been full of messiness and full of curveballs. So we are going to explore uh, this with Sai. I interviewed her last year on her book, No Ego, very, very powerful uh, episodes on that book. And I'm, again, very, very happy to have such a profoundly uh, authentic and aware and educated and um, amazing human being on the podcast. So welcome, Sai. Oh, thank you, Dr. Laura. You're always good for my uh, heart. <laughs> well, we're going to talk today about life's messy, live happy, keys to contentment. So Sai, this book could not have come at a better time for me. I read it cover to cover, and I just love uh, a lot of what you have to say in it. It's tangible and practical, and I've been dealing with my own challenges lately, which have pushed me to really argue with reality and to argue about why things have happened the way they've happened and living with some uh, regret and, you know, resentment and things like that. Um, so it felt like this book was speaking directly to me about moving forward and not getting stuck in the past. So can you tell us a little more about what led you to write this book? Sure. I, as many people know, I've written on business topics that from a different angle, an angle of how do we transcend ego and bring our most evolved self into our business situations. And one of the most often asked questions was, you know, Sai, we know you've been through some stuff and you seem to live this philosophy in your personal life. Like, tell us more. Because I tell so many personal stories from stage. Tell us more about how you live this on the daily. And as COVID hit and I was once again finding myself back by the water, which is where I go to retreat, and much of my life had fallen apart, I got a call from my publisher and uh, he said, during this pandemic, do you want to write a book to tell people how to live, like how to live happy in a messy world? You do it really well. And I said, you know, actually, I have no desire to write a book to tell other people how to live. I would write a book to tell people how I have lived. And if that were helpful to others, I would be glad to do that. And I started um, on the adventure of writing a book to help people understand that life is always messy and that so many of us try and clean up the mess. We think, oh, if I just get organized or if I just get the right relationship or if I just meet the right person, then I'll be happy. We defer our happiness. Or we think we're a self-help project, like all like, you know, fix myself and then I can walk out to the world and be happy. And what I know is that it's important for us to forge wisdom, to evolve ourselves. And that determines how much love we can walk out into the messy world with. But the life happens in the messiness. The 3D part of life is when you meet the world and are willing to 
just play wholeheartedly in the messiness, knowing your heart will be broken, knowing that um, at times you'll be sad. And so I wanted to write a book that wasn't about toxic positivity, like pressuring people to be happy in the midst of a pandemic, but really showing people how you can be happy um, in the context of your entire life, that there's space for all of it. You can build a life big enough to hold um, sadness and happiness at the same time. And so it was such a a wonderful process to be able to do that. That's wonderful. And you use the wording toxic positivity. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because that's kind of a, a interesting way to say it. it. It really, you know, for me, when I read a lot about happiness or I see things like on Instagram and it's like, find the silver lining and, you know, someday you'll understand why this was in your favor. And while all of those things are true, Toxic positivity is when we pressure someone to feel more positive about something than they do. And it encourages people to like spiritually bypass, like intellectually make sense of this so that you can move on. And what I found a lot of people aren't doing, in fact, I put in my book a chapter on it, is feel your feelings. Um, you don't have to say stuck in your feelings. You um, don't have to trust your feelings, like that that they inform you well of the version of the world. They they don't make sense of it. But getting embodied enough to sit with your feelings until they tell you their name, like get the information from your feelings, feel your feelings, breathe into them, release them um, somatically from your body. And then with that cleansing, move through the world more skillfully um, from that learning. And so there's a lot of pressure out there at times to either feel your feelings. And I always say, you know, feel your feelings, but don't trust your feelings. Feel them, but don't trust that they, that the way you've made sense of the world is accurate. But feel your feelings and, um, and then move through the world informed by those feelings and by that information. Um, and so I don't want to pressure people to be happy and content. I'm trying to promote the fact that you can build a life big enough that is a vessel to hold everything and that you can be happy and grateful while going through some unpreferable things, that, that there's room for all of it. And that's how we maintain this perspective. And that's how we can really just fully involve ourselves in life. Wow, that is so well put. Now, what impacts do you hope this this book has on people? My hope is that it normalizes this thing we call the human experience. I had some shame that I could be so successful in business and not have a successful, you know, relationship. I had shame around like, gosh, I should be able to stay married. And I never looked at my ability to leave a marriage as um, integrity about um, being true to myself. Like I thought things like divorce meant my marriage failed. And I found out like divorce for me was an act of integrity that I was gonna stop abandoning myself in order not to be abandoned by another. And there are so many women out there who are profoundly successful, but we're successful at times through overgiving. We're successful at times through abandoning ourselves. I just really wanted to go first and share with people my own vulnerabilities, not as a victim story, not as, oh, look what happened to me, but to say, here are some of the key um, revelations I've had many times I've had to learn over and over again that I wanted to just reach out to all people, but especially women and say, Hey, 
join the club of humanness. This is our human experience. This is how we do things imperfectly. This is perhaps what you can look at to find that what you're going through is part of life and that you're not alone out there and that success isn't about acing the test, studying up and getting you know the best score on the test, that success is being able to keep your heart and mind open and every day be willing to go into the best in us and be evolved by it, but also love people in spite of it. And I just, I really wanted to give people a different message than what they might be hearing. Um, so many books are on how you can improve yourself. And I'm like, you're just really perfect and probably could stand some improvement, but I really wanted it to be a different um, way that people could look at where they're at today in their journey. It sure is. It sure is. And you bring so much of yourself into it and so many authentic, um, poignant, uh, impactful stories. So thank you for sharing this with the world. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. What was the most fun part of writing it? And what was the most difficult part? Oh my gosh, I'll tell you the most difficult part first. So all the other books I've written have been research and evidence-based. This one was research-based, but it was research I did in my own life. So the other ones were really looking at the research, looking at what I implemented in companies and the books kind of wrote themselves. I was just reporting out what we had come to know to be true in this moment at work. This book, I had to do so much self-reflection and processing it because I didn't want to write a book that was like, here's what other people did to me, because that's not the point of the book. That happens and, and people are humans and people are doing the best they can with what they got. I wanted to write a book to speak towards my own evolution, my own growth through those times. So to do that, I really had to reflect deeply to pick the right words to put something out there and really ask myself, what do I believe? And is it this word or that word? And then really rely on my close friends and colleagues, um, Marin Shukir, fantastic editor, like-minded editor. I've written, um, this is my um, second book I've written with her really challenged me to remove any victim-mindedness, any blame, any, to get it so clean. And so for me, it was the hardest book I've ever written because I really had to look at what happened, own my part in that, and make sense of it in a way that wasn't blaming of others, but claimed my own truth. And it was a, a deep process, very deep process. I can tell. I, I really, really can tell. And um, this is something I'll return to. I have, you know, things highlighted. Oh, I have uh, stickies. So it's definitely something um, I'll, I'll be returning to myself because this is not a one and done type read. <laughs> this, this has nuggets to go back to. And I tried to give people, I didn't write it from beginning to end. That was different how I wrote this book. You know, I didn't say, here's how to live, you know, happily in a messy world and then write it. I just chose vignettes and lessons. And so each chapter stands independently from one another. And so I just wrote on how often we strive to be chosen and don't even ask ourselves. And then I tried to give some exercises that you could use. So I really think it's a book that people may not relate to one chapter right now in their lives, but if they keep it around, they'll be, they'll be drawn back into the book um, 
as they need that type of um, help in their thinking. Absolutely. Now, when you talk about curveballs in life that hit us all inevitably um, and finding clarity amidst those curveballs, you talk about three key questions to ask. And I'd, I'd love if you could summarize that for the listeners. Yeah. In fact, I did my TEDx talk on three questions that changed my life. And they're just three powerful questions. So first of all, if you're using that part of your mind that I call low self, or you're seeing the world through ego, which if you're suffering is absolutely the case. To get to loosen your ego's grip on your view of the world to get you out of a weak or a victim position, self reflection is the ultimate drama diffuser, it is the ultimate way to move from victimhood to accountability and accountability is really the foundation for living happy in a messy world. The first question I ask myself often is what do I know for sure? because that loosens the ego's grip on my view of the world. Like they did this on purpose or they were always lying to me or they never loved me. It's like, when I ask what I know for sure, it's like, we had a lot of love. We had a lot of disagreements and we both fumbled our way through a process that now I know more about for myself. Like when I ask that question, it gets me back to reality and reality is never as harsh as our story and our suffering comes from our stories, not our reality. And when I ask that question, like, what do I know for sure? Let's me see reality clearly. And I would tell you, most of us do not see reality clearly. We either see it fantasy where we refuse to, to acknowledge red flags or um, when people give us answers about what they're willing to give us in their lives, we ignore it, or we create this victimhood um, for ourselves. So once you see reality clearly, the next question really taps into who we are as people. What could I do to help given this situation? What could I do that would be most, most helpful? And this is where we have to really be careful not to overgive or overfunction. Like most helpful isn't let me work both sides of the relationship so somebody else doesn't have to. What can I do to help? A lot of times is ask directly for what I need or believe the answer they're giving me um, as it comes or, um, you know, there's just a lot of things. And, and sometimes in my life, what do I know for sure? I can't find anything Pollyanna. I know for sure that someone didn't live up to a commitment or someone, you know, self-reportedly did something very uh, painful. What can I do to help? It's not in me sometimes to help. So I had to come up with a third question for when those questions, the first two kind of don't get me all the way there. And this is a question of my own integrity. If I were great right now, what would great look like? What would it look like if I were true to myself and true to my values of being kind and loving and not blaming? And that question in so many situations, if I were great right now, what would great look like? Not if the situation were great or if you were great, what would that look like? And for me, often that is a kind, loving person setting boundaries, not to control you, but to, um, um, honor me and finding that place where I can love you and me at the same time. And, uh, and really doing that in a way where I don't have to be reactive and I can just know what my truth is and, and walk in that truth. So what would great look like really helps elevate me to not match other people's energy and to transcend situations. Um, so those three questions have helped me so much. And I know in your previous book, 
um, on no ego and your reality-based leadership research. You use those those types of questions in organizations, right? As I do it in coaching. What do you know for sure? What could you do next that would help? If you were great right now, what would that look like? They are the key questions that um, get us out of venting and into self-reflection and into accountability so we can actually have impact in the world. And I, I think the venting, I mean, is something that's so common and arguing with reality that was so unfair. Why did that happen? And trying to make sense of why people did or acted in the way they do. But you talk about how to get away from that and arguing against reality doesn't work. Um, can you tell us a little more about that? When we're faced with an unpreferred situation, we do two things that are a colossal waste of time. We argue with reality. This is sick and wrong, and this isn't how they should have acted, and this isn't how it was supposed to turn out, and this isn't fair. And you can argue with reality. You'll lose the argument 100% of the time. And when you argue with reality, you miss the information contained in reality, which is trying to evolve you, which is giving you really good data or we just hope for a different future. I hope they change, or I hope that they understand that my motive was different, or there's a space between an unpreferred reality and a different future, the one you desire. And that space is sometimes small, but you gotta get in there and bridge this unpreferred reality and, and mine it for learning and choose differently so that your future can be different. And I use the word given and the word and, I have chapters in the book about single words. And I use those words to um, help me in that space. And so given this is my reality and given here's what I want for myself and my life, what could I do next that would help? What would be a next great choice? Or a lot of times I use and, I, I get an either or, and it's like, well, if I do this, I can't have that. And it's like, let's change this. How can I have this that I value and this? And that question really elevates things out of duality. So it's, it's important to work for me. That's great. And I, I just love these. These techniques are very, you know, simple in a way, but they take practice. Simple word choices and how we speak about things and how we use journaling, I, I think, um, are really evident in, in your book. So thank you for that. And one of those things is gratitude lists and gratitude practice, which I've incorporated every morning in my morning meditation slash journaling um, and intention for the day. And the way I use gratitude actually, I think could be improved by your tips. So can you share a bit more about the gratitude practice in the book? Sure. You know, I never intended to write anything on gratitude because I think it's a topic that, you know, a lot of people have written on and done great work is overdone. And I ended up writing two chapters on gratitude. So when I start my gratitude practice, I simply learned to pay attention to things that happened in my life that were welcome. And it changed my view away from some over-focus on negative to really seeing how blessed I was in the positive. And so that helped in the beginning. And then I really learned to appreciate, really spend time with the sacredness of the invisible help and the visible help that I got in my life. 
And so for a while that was really good. But what I find out with all of our spiritual practices is the ego gets in there and morphs it. And my gratitude practice became kind of superstitious. Like if I went to bed without doing my gratitude list, I would get back up because I wanted to document the good things in my life. And I realized I was doing that as if I was making a deal with the universe. I will recognize it. So you will give me more. And it actually was a way I was trying to bargain with the universe. Like I want more of this, less of that. And it started out that it helped, but as I counted my blessings, I started to realize the gap in my gratitude practice was I wasn't counting everything in my life as a blessing. That true gratitude for me wasn't just taking off the thing, the 10 things I was grateful in the day, because that was my ego telling me what I preferred. But I did a practice where I wrote down all the highlights of my day. And then I looked at what I was easily grateful for and there were some gaps and I wanted to work those gaps and the gaps were, let me take a look at this. I'm not grateful for yet. They didn't welcome coming or I didn't welcome it leaving that I was violating the, the principle of impermanence. And sometimes the gap was, I just didn't have perspective in the moment. It seemed disastrous, but we've all had those things that happen that 10 years later were like best thing ever. Some of it happened to teach me and involve me, but I wasn't yet willing to mine it for the lesson. So I started looking at the highlights of my day and seeing how I could get everything on my list that happened with perspective or with mining it for lessons. And it also really changed me in that I started to look at my gratitude list with an eye towards what hits my list easily that doesn't easily hit other people in this world's list because that gives me an indication of my privilege. And if there's something on my list that couldn't just easily fall on other people's lists, what can I do from a standpoint of generosity to have more people able to have that on their list? So something simple like home ownership, if I'm so grateful for a beautiful home I'm able to build, I need to look at the fact that my privilege makes it easier for me to get a mortgage than somebody who doesn't have the skin color that I have. And what can I do about that? So my gratitude actually started to inform my actions. Um, so gratitude can be so expanded. It's a bigger practice than we might think. Amazing. I mean, just that is is so powerful uh, to hear. And I, I think I, I've done the same thing for sure. And it's really going to help me take my gratitude practice a step further. So thank you for that. I have lots of thank yous, lots of thank yous. <laughs> um, resiliency and wellness is something we talk about a lot on this podcast about the intersection of work and life and how to be more well in both spheres. And you talk about something really interesting in the book, self, self-soothing, self say that three times really fast, <laughs> and self-care and the differences. And I thought, again, this elevated some of the messages that I've heard before. So can you explain more? You know, I think during especially the world health crisis and all the the experiences we've been through in the last couple of years, resiliency can almost get weaponized because we think it's like, something internal, if I just have enough grit, and, and that's part of it, is strengthening that muscle of grit. But resiliency really is a lot about tapping into the collective genius or the source. And 
I think it was Marianne Williamson once said in one of the sessions I had with her, she said, you know, Sai, the problem that, that you have is you don't realize you're just a toaster. I'm like, what? She goes, without being able to plug into source, you can do nothing. You can't self-manufacture your own energy. And this has a lot to do with um, self-care um, because self-care is all about plugging into source, whether it's the collective genius and our resources or whatever source you believe is there. And self-care is different because it's restorative, it's replenishing, it puts us in a position where we can again go out into the world in a way that we can be evolved by it, but not traumatized by it. Where self-soothing is how I numb myself almost to procrastinate the world I have to, I don't want to go out into the world again. So binging Netflix, as much as I love a good Netflix or having a glass of wine at night or a massage every once in a while, is self-soothing. Sometimes it's just numbing us from the world, but it doesn't leave us more capable of um, re-entering the world. Self-care are habits and dedications that make us more capable. So like I've had a meditation practice for years and that to me is self-care, although sometimes it's soothing too, because when I meditate daily, I'm less reactive in the world, I'm more capable. And so I think massages can be self-soothing and they're good to have, they feel good. I do weekly massage and have for 20 years. And for me, that's self-care because it's a time where I really get in touch with my body and see how I'm doing with um, experiencing my feelings and, and, and caring for myself. So I think there's a big difference and we're pretty confused about that. Absolutely. So again, I think the book really gets into some tools and examples in, in that in that self-care domain. So so that's great. And my last question in, in this episode is about generosity. And you have a chapter on that and the topic of overgiving. And it resonated a lot with me being a people pleaser and putting my needs behind others at times to be very accommodating. Uh, very flexible is what I am. But I love the messages there about being very careful about overgiving and its impacts. So can you tell us a little about that yeah you know that was a big lesson for me to learn because if I've prided myself on any part of my identity which is ego is I'm a super generous person and I'm glad to help and I freely give and um and what I was amazed to find out is there were times that it was generosity and there are times it was overgiving. And what was the difference is whether or not I was doing it with a motive, whether I was doing it freely or I was using it as an attempt to control. Was I giving, was I being flexible and accommodating because I wanted you to see me in a certain way? Was it superiority? Like, no, I'm glad to give, although none of the rest of you, you know, are, you're all setting boundaries. Um, and, I found out, lived, I think it was, um, I know it was Anne Lamont that said, help can be the sunny side of control. And when I would give, I had to watch if I gave, 
how I reacted to how people received and what they did with those gifts. And if I had resentment, it wasn't generosity, it was overgiving. And I had to really ask myself a lot of questions, which I include in the book, like, am I giving freely and am I giving with motive? And what am I hoping to accomplish um, from this? And um, how do I feel afterwards? And it was so important to me because I tended to even give help when it wasn't even requested, like unrequested help. Like how many times are you in the airport and someone seems lost and you go out of your way to make sure they know where they're going? It's just none of your business. Now, could that be kind and helpful or could that be controlling? What I learned about myself is I'm so conflict adverse that I even try and prevent conflict when it's not even my conflict. When you're just trying to get your suitcase on board and there's a conflict because you can't find a space, I don't like conflict so much that I try and help other people's conflict from happening before it happens. And I've had to really look at how I can just get more comfortable with what's happening in the world. And if someone comes to me, I have a lot of options. If they ask for help, I can say, I love you and no. I can say, I love you and sure. Um, or I can say, I don't love you and yes, I'll still help. Or I just thought if I loved you, I had to help. I thought those were my only options. And um, I've just given a lot more help without strings attached. And that's better for the person receiving it. And it's better for me. Wonderful. Well, that was a lot of ground we, we just covered there. And the book is divided in three sections. And I, I felt like we definitely covered uh, the, the first section quite a bit. And we started to get into section two. And um, in our next episode, we're going to further explore uh, this book and talk more about evolving yourself uh, to live happier. So thank you so much, Sai, for being on this episode. And I look really forward to the next episode, which we'll release in two weeks. And if you like this episode, please share it with others who may benefit. I do this to bring these important messages and learnings to the world. And you can sign up on my website, drlaura.live, monthly newsletter that shares all the episodes. And I write blog articles and, and share resources with you. So thanks for being here, everyone. Thank you, Cy Wakeman and Stay well. Thank you so much for joining us today on Where Work Meets Life. I'm passionate about sharing insights from experts around the world on topics at the intersection of where work meets life. If you found this podcast useful, please share with others who may benefit and engage with us on social media. For more articles, information, and tips, sign up for my monthly newsletter at my website, drlaura.live. This podcast summary contains links to the psychology practice I founded, Work Evolution, Canada Career Counseling, and Synthesis Psychology, as well as my current employer, Humans, a nationwide organizational psychology firm focusing on culture and performance. Stay well.